You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's get right to the homicide investigation out of Maryland involving 37-year-old Rachel Morin. Now, she's the mother of five who might be called a fitness junkie by some people, but she did regularly work out and included walking in that fitness strategy. Now, on August 5th, Rachel left her Bel Air, Maryland home at about 6 p.m. She was going to the white gravel three-mile path of the Ma Pa Heritage Trail. Now, the wide walking path is flanked by lush trees in the summer months, and by all accounts, it's a relatively safe place to walk or jog. Now, when Rachel didn't return in a timely manner from her walk, boyfriend, who is 27-year-old Richard Tobin, went looking for her. After spotting her car in a parking area near the trail, but not finding Rachel, he called law enforcement to report her missing. Law enforcement did tow the car and they began looking for Rachel, despite people believing in that whole made up rule of must wait 24 hours. Well, 18 hours later, the body of Rachel Morin was found at 1.07 p.m. off the Ma and Pa Trail, and it was found by a volunteer who had joined a search party just trying to find Rachel. Now, Michael, the volunteer's father, said he felt strongly the tunnel should be searched. He said his daughter, who was friends with Rachel, searched one of the drain tunnels, and that is when Rachel was found. Now, police didn't immediately say that she had been murdered, but her sister, Rebecca, didn't hesitate. On the GoFundMe page set up upon her death, her sister, Rebecca, wrote that her death was not accidental. Now, since that posting, authorities have opened a homicide case around the suspicious death. The Harford County Sheriff said in an official statement that they are unclear if it was a targeted crime, but that authorities will leave no stone unturned. He also did not say there was no threat to the community. So I know this is a news podcast, but I just want to say I appreciate the honesty of that statement. It's not the feel-good thing to say, but if it's true, 
The public deserves to have a heightened awareness of a possible murderer roaming the area. That was my one big complaint about the College of Idaho quadruple homicide. Police came out the very day the bodies were discovered and assured the public that they didn't need to be concerned about their safety. We now know that was just patently false. Yet there was what I am perceiving to be a need to almost calm the waters. Well, don't calm them if it's not accurate. And the sheriff, in this case, he even went as far as to tell people using the trail to be cautious and mindful of their surroundings. He also committed that there would be an increased police presence along the trail as they continue to track down Rachel's killer. All right, the sheriff also said that no suspects had been identified, and he asked the public not to speculate on an active and ongoing investigation. All right, so what about the boyfriend? The significant other seems to always be the first targeted suspect by both outsiders and law enforcement. Well, in this case, Richard, the boyfriend, wrote on Facebook the following. I love you, Rachel. I would never do anything to her. Let the family and I grieve. Yes, I have a past, but I have also been clean 15 months and I've changed as a person. Please. Okay, also in what might be a little bizarre to some, maybe a little bizarre to me, but it might just be completely normal to others who live their lives out on social media. Richard's Facebook post about Rachel, well, it has over 400 comments, just random strangers offering their condolences and also other random strangers accusing him of the murder. Now, Richard's brushes with the law that he references in that Facebook post, they include arrest for assault, malicious destruction of property, drug possession, and violating restraining orders. Rachel and Richard's relationship seems to be fairly new. They became Facebook official. I don't like that term, but this is the reality. They became a Facebook official on August 1st, and that was just a few days before she actually went missing and then was murdered. Now, on her own Facebook, it was a couple of weeks before that when Rachel shared some photos of her and Richard. This seems to be an unimaginable and devastating time for Rachel's family. Her sister, Rebecca, wrote in the GoFundMe post that she couldn't provide details of Rachel's death because it was just too painful. She also said her brother, Nathan, and his wife, Megan, had just lost their baby, Lily Beth, to sudden infant death syndrome just the week before. In fact, the funeral service for Lily was just the day before Rachel went missing. Now, some have tried to link another disappearance in the Bel Air area to that of Rachel. 58-year-old Karen Elliott vanished from a hotel in Bel Air just a few hours before Rachel went walking in the Ma and Pa area. But the sheriff did confirm at the press conference that the two cases are not linked. Now on the GoFundMe page, tributes poured in about what a wonderful person Rachel was. People mentioned that they knew Rachel and her children and what a wonderful family they are. And according to Baltimore Banner, Rachel ran a house cleaning business and she loved to listen to music. Her friend Becca Dill said that Rachel found strength in her faith and that she often recited memorized scriptures on days where she felt a little defeated or maybe abandoned by the world. Now, the sheriff's office is asking for anyone with pictures from the area near the time of her death or with just general information to call the following number, 410-836-5430. He said it was important to remember that there is a family at the heart of this, five kids who have lost their mother and parents 
who have lost a daughter. All right, let's now head to San Antonio, where a concerned family thwarted a potential copycat school shooting. To better understand this case, let's look back at the horrific school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Now, it was the morning of May 24th, 2022, when Salvador Ramos, who I'm going to refer to as gunman from this point forward, because he doesn't deserve to have any more notoriety than has already been given to him. Okay, so on that morning, he begins sending text messages to an online friend in Germany about being annoyed with his grandmother. He first threatens in text that he is going to do something to her right now. And then in his final text to his German friend, he says, I just shot my grandma in the head. I'm going to go shoot up an elementary school right now. All right, the gunman leaves his grandmother, who was shot in the face, to die, and he steals her truck. He then drives directly to Robb Elementary School, which is just a few blocks away. Now, as the gunman approaches the school, he crashes the truck into a ditch. As he's exiting the truck and heading to the school, he fires three rounds at two men who witnessed the crash. He then flees towards the school while the men are calling 911. Now, as the gunman reaches the school property, he tosses his backpack over the five-foot fence and then climbs over the fence itself. And Rob Elementary coach Yvette Silva sees the gunman begin to shoot once he is on the school property. Yvette runs to a group of third graders and aids them in the locking down process while using her school radio to announce that somebody just jumped over the fence and is shooting. Well, at nearly the same time, while the gunman is approaching the school, another teacher sees the event. She attempts to lock her exterior door and she yells for the children to get into their classrooms. She also uses the school radio to report the event. Okay, by this time, the gunman is now hiding between cars in the last row of the school parking lot. Surveillance footage from a nearby funeral home shows that school resource officer Arredondo enters the parking lot in his patrol car and he drives right past the concealed gunman. The gunman continues to fire shots through windows on the west side of the school building. The school has begun a lockdown procedure, mostly based on Coach Silva's radio report of the shooting. And teachers are hurriedly telling students to hide inside their classrooms, and some teachers actually lock their doors. Well, one minute later, the gunman finds an open door on the northwest side of the building. Now, this is the same door that the teacher who spotted the gunman, she thought she had locked it, but it wasn't locked after all. And unfortunately, a government report found that three doors on that side of the building were unlocked which was in violation of the school policy. Now, school surveillance footage shows the gunman entering room 111, which it doesn't appear to be locked. It was later discovered that the door lock had been broken and it had also been reported to the school that it needed to be repaired. Again, in a series of unfortunate events, the broken lock had not been addressed and the gunman did not face any obstacle to his planned evil destruction. Now, room 111 is connected from interior walls to room 112. Like you can walk into room 111 and then into room 112 without going back out to the hallway. For the next two minutes, the gunman shoots over 100 rounds in those two classrooms. And this is while children's screams can be heard in the surveillance footage as the bullets are flying. 
Now, a bullet also went through an interior wall and struck a teacher in room 109. That teacher did survive that attack. Just two minutes after the attack on room 111 and 112, two separate groups of police officers entered the building in different locations. And this is actually relatively quick, probably based upon the two men who called who were near the funeral home. But again, it's actually relatively quick. What a great response. But as you're going to see, this is really where being quick in this situation, it really ends right here. Now of those first responding, three officers entered through the same door that the gunman used and four officers entered through the south side of the building. Now in the chaos, the original four officers said they saw a cloud of debris and bullet holes in walls, but That story actually later changes in government hearings where the officers said they didn't hear screaming, nor did they understand anyone had been shot. Okay, but with that confusion, it is caught on camera that an officer peers into the vestibule for rooms 111 and 112, and he immediately faced gunfire. So those officers retreated down the north end of the school hallway. And during this time, Not a single officer opened fire in the school building in response. And if you're asking the question, how did they get fired upon? But then they're thinking that there isn't a possibility that anyone is wounded. I mean, I'm asking that question, and I think you're asking the same thing. Well, one minute later, the gunman stops firing. Officer Arredondo checks room 110. Not room 111 or room 112, where they heard and were met with gunfire previously. He finds room 110 to be empty, and he then theorizes, according to a government report, that no children were in the classrooms because it was awards day at the school. Now, other law enforcement that remained in the hallway said they heard no screaming or crying, and they believed that no one was in need of medical attention. Are we getting the like the gist of what's going on here, lots of conflicting stories. Now, it's at this time that the officers made a collective decision to treat the gunman as a, quote, barricaded subject instead of an active shooter. But just two minutes later, right after that decision was made, Officer Arredondo is requesting SWAT backup and the gunman fires one more round so they can hear him firing bullets. Now, during these precious minutes, not one officer checks to see if the door to room 111 is even locked. By this time, there are more than a dozen officers on scene, including officers in full tactical gear, but all of the officers remain in the hallways. Dispatch also informs the officers that class is in session which actually contradicts their decision-making about students being in an awards assembly. Now, about five minutes later, some students are evacuated in other areas of the school by officers breaking windows and guiding students to safety. Rob Elementary makes a Facebook post at this time that states students and staff are safe in the building and that the building is in lockdown status. Now, a full 20 minutes after the shooting began, Some parents have gathered outside of the school, and an onlooker starts streaming a live video of the event. At this point, no one knows who's in charge. Is it Officer Arredondo, who's with the school police? Is it a SWAT member? Is it Uvalde Police Department? 
finally, one DPS special agent is getting so frustrated. He states, we just need to go in. Y'all don't know if there are kids in there. That, that DPS officer or that DPS agent is Agent Williams. And he's told to stand down and that whoever's in charge will determine when they enter the classrooms and engage the shooter. All right. 30 minutes after the first shots were fired, a student in room 112 calls 911. But because Officer Arredondo does not have his radio, he is not made aware of the call. All while 19 officers are camped in the hallway outside of room 111 and 112. Now, while Arredondo is looking for a master key to the door of room 111, okay, remember, officers haven't even checked to see if it's locked. The student who has called 911 calls back two more times, reporting that people are dead. Now, when Border Patrol arrives 15 minutes later, the acting commander is told that the gunman has possibly shot multiple children and that they are still in the classrooms. Yet remember, they aren't entering the classrooms because it's a suspect barricaded situation, not an active shooter. It's now been over 45 minutes and police are using a master key to check other doors, but not the door of room 111. Now, 50 minutes into the rampage, the gunman fires four more shots. At this point, more students have called 911 and reported that teachers and students are dead and several are wounded. Over 70 minutes into the massacre, it appears that the master key has been located. Even though the door to room 111 is not locked, 73 minutes, 73 minutes into the shooting, police finally enter room 111 and kill the gunman while a student on 911 is begging for police to help. It is later determined that no one really made the call to even enter the room. Just some of the men wouldn't wait any longer. Tragically, when the massacre was over, the gunman had killed 19 students and two teachers in the second deadliest school shooting ever in America. Okay, now the gunman's grandmother did survive with the help of a neighbor calling 911. And authorities later determined that the gunman asked relatives to buy him guns before he turned 18. Both relatives refused, but the shooter did buy gun-related accessories online. He also bought 60 rounds of ammunition. And the gunman also referenced on social media sites that he was going to do something that would make him famous. But no one took action to address his behaviors. And that leads us to the update. The gunman's cousin, 17-year-old Nathan Cruz, was arrested on Monday on allegations that he was threatening the same thing his cousin did. KSAT out of San Antonio said Nathan Cruz's mother was concerned with Nathan's behavior, and she was nervous because they live across the street from an elementary school. She also said that Nathan had told another family member that school would be starting soon. That same family member also said she heard Nathan on a phone call with an unidentified person. And during that call, Nathan was trying to illegally buy an AR-15 type rifle from the person. Nathan's sister also said Nathan had made threats about a potential copycat shooting. Well, Nathan was arrested and charged with making a terroristic threat against a public place and also making a threat against a family member. His bond has been set at $150,000.
I think it's important to recognize that family quite possibly saved lives in this situation, even though it had to be a terribly difficult decision to turn Nathan into authorities. Thank goodness for them. And let's finish with the quick update to a baffling case from 2007. 16 years ago, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office in Florida said a teen discovered a woman's body buried in a shallow grave in a wooded area behind an auto body shop. This was just near Aston Court. Now, the woman had died of blunt force trauma to the head and had been estimated that she had been buried in the woods for somewhere near 7 to 12 months. Now, the woman's body had no shoes, which led investigators to believe she didn't walk into the woods, but was instead carried or dumped there. Unfortunately, detectives were never able to identify the woman until a week ago, when it was announced the woman was 39-year-old Gina Lynn Burris. Detectives used DNA testing and databases to crack the case. Okay, see, Gina's aunt had submitted her DNA to a website like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. And when she did so, she agreed to have it shared. And that led investigators to knock on her door several months ago. Now, this sounds like good news for the family, right? But here's the confusing part. Gina lived with her husband, James Burris, and their son, James Jr., at the time of her death. And no one reported her missing. So just let that settle in. Can you even imagine no one reporting you missing? Well, obviously, some questions remain. Why not report her missing? At the time of her death, James worked in an auto body repair shop, and her son attended the local elementary school. Yeah, you heard that right. He worked at the exact auto body shop near where Gina was found. And James, he quickly moved to Maryland after the discovery of the unidentified body. And neighbors have now confirmed that police, just a few weeks ago, searched the home that James and Gina shared 16 years ago. Police have confirmed also they found nothing in that search. The auto body shop that James worked at has also been searched, but nothing was found there either. And despite not finding any evidence, police have said that James is a person of interest in Gina's death. The couple was struggling at the time, and they had a very volatile relationship. The messenger also confirmed that James Jr. had been told his mother abandoned him, and that the now 20-year-old is learning everything right along with investigators. Now, loved ones described the stay-at-home mom as a very fun, loving, warm person. Her uncle said she really had a lot to do with her family, with James and James Jr. Now, when being interviewed by the Tribune, that same uncle said for years they were waiting for her to show up anytime, especially around loved ones' birthdays, just like she had in the past before they believed she left. Now, when authorities informed family that she'd been killed... Her uncle said it wasn't pleasant news. He called it tearful news that was shocking and that they don't want to believe that this happened. Investigators are hoping that if people become aware of this story, that someone might be able to shed light on what happened 16 years ago. So if you were there anywhere near that area 16 years ago and you have any information, please call 941-861-4900. 
All right. That's your Thursday edition of Rise in Crime. Please don't hesitate to send me case suggestions that we can cover together on Rise in Crime. And I'm also grateful for those five-star ratings. It keeps us building this community. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.